Blog Talk Radio. Episode of Buzzworthy here on BlogTalkRadio.com and on BuzzworthyRadio.net. Although I'm still the same host, Navelle J. Lee, it is a brand new year. It is January 3rd, 2012, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific Time, and this is day two of our retrospective, if you would like to call it, where we have picked some of our favorite podcasts from 2011 to showcase to you again uh, this this week. Yesterday, we kick things off with our interview with Daniel Goddard from November. Well, now this one is going to be from October. Sherry Anderson, we had the chance to sit down and speak with her. So I have the pleasure of showcasing this interview off onto you again. Here is our interview with Sherry Anderson, former Days of Our Lives writer, which originally aired October 3rd, 2011. She's one of the former writers of NBC Daytime's Days of Our Lives. I, 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 I've seen so much about her. I've watched a lot of her stuff growing up. And now having the pleasure of sitting here being able to talk to this woman is is completely amazing to me. So I'm humbled and I'm very proud to welcome Sherry Anderson on the on the line with us. How are you? I'm great. And what a great introduction. How do I live up to that? And I think, you know, I'm sitting here in the Chateau Vermont Garden talking to somebody about one of the favorite things I love, which is daytime and days of our lives. So how can life be better? Absolutely. Well, could you send some of that weather to the East Coast? Because it's it's now starting to affect me. I miss summer. I, I kind of I want, want my heat back. <laughs> oh, I know. Well, we understand that actually starting on Wednesday, it's going to start raining here. So we're trying to soak up all the sun that we can. <laughs> oh, see? See, there you go. Now you get to experience what the other, how the other half lives. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. No, and I'm lucky because I was born in Los Angeles and I was in the shadow of Disneyland, so I am very, very spoiled. So I apologize for that. <laughs> you know what? I can't. I can't fault it because if I were you, I'd probably be doing the same thing. I would start bragging to everybody. <laughs> so I, I would. I would completely do the same thing. So one of the things. One of the things we definitely need to get into. Um, let, let's start off with this. Let's start off with the book. You know, I, I got I got wind of the fact that you're penning your second book, um, Salem Secrets, Scandals, and Lies. I like yes. the title. So let's, Thank you. Let's, let's talk about this. There's been some people wanting to know who's going to be in this book, and now that Marlene and John are back in Real Salem, can we say Real Salem? We'll call it Real Salem. <laughs> <laughs> Real Salem on TV on NBC's Days of Our Lives will say that they're going to be in the book, how, what, what's going to happen. We pretty much want to know what's going on. So let's talk about this. Well, you know, Days of Our Lives contacted me about two years ago to see if I would be interested in writing a series of novels for them. Um, and as I said before, people used to talk to me about writing books, and I would say, well, the problem is I will write them and nobody will publish them just because the book industry is so tough. But they said, we have a branding situation with Days of Our Lives, and we actually want you to write the novels, and we have money, 
and we have a publishing deal. And so I said, oh, boy, great. Because the thing is about writing novels versus writing a show is when you're writing novels, you have no restrictions whatsoever, you know. And the first novel, which is The Secret in Salem, actually takes place in Monte Carlo in Switzerland because that's where John and Marlena were. And my feeling was to get the characters that were off the canvas at the time and that people really, really wanted to see and kind of fill in some of the holes. So I was lucky enough to be able to take them in a very romantic setting and with a lot of secrets and a lot of scandal um, and place them in the first book in, in Monte Carlo. And then we under, uncovered some more secrets about them. And then in the second book, I actually took everybody to South Africa. And A Stirring from Salem basically takes place in London, uh, Switzerland, and South Africa, where I've actually done a couple of projects before. And the thing is, novels are all about conflict, good stories about conflict, romance, and humor. And I think they're in all of those. And to answer your one question is, you know, they're on the show now, which was kind of a, a, a an interesting situation because it's like, how does that affect the novels? But the novels actually take place, these first three, before John and Marlena come back to the canvas, which they just did last week, as you know. So um, really kind of an interesting dynamic. And in the second book, it's also heavily Patch and Kayla. Um, and then some of the other new characters that I created, and, you know, Shane makes an appearance, and Bo, you know, a number of people kind of filter into there. So for people who like the show and love the show and love some of those characters that I helped co-create... They're all there. And then there's some new ones that people are falling in love with, too. Oh, great. So there you are, everybody. And for those of you who want to know, there's... Yeah, but the thing is, I love those characters. You know, I helped create a lot of those characters and those those couples, the super couples, and I love revisiting them. So it's been fun for me. You've been synonymous for creating a lot of daytime super couples that everybody is falling in love with, myself included. I mean, you, you, John and Marlena, for one, hello. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, Bo and Hope, uh, Luke and Laura, mm-hmm. Patch, Kayla. Yeah, you, you know, I've always said the thing is with the super couples, too. You know, a lot of times you create that super couple, but a lot of times a super couple will suddenly appear to you when they're on screen and you see somebody who these actors just click and the character dynamics work. And so they might not have been your couple to begin with, but you suddenly, like in life, you know, you will realize that this person really clicks with the other person, and you do that. But, you know, I always try to say this. I was a creator and co-creator of a lot of these people, people who deserve great credit, Pat Falkenstead, Maggie DePriest, Leah Lehman and Tom Racina. Um, There are a lot of people that were involved in all of these super couples. Gloria Monty with Luke and Laura, Doug Marlin. You know, it, it goes back a long way. Jim Riley and a lot of these people. So, you know, I love that everybody loves these characters. As I said, when you created them or co-created them, you can't help but love them. It's it's funny to think about because when we say super couple, I always uh-huh. sit here and go, what makes a super couple a super couple? Like, like how does, how does a couple become a super couple? I've never well, you know, understood again, that. Yeah, so much of it depends on the dynamic. And, you know, one of the first super couples that we have to mention were Doug and Julie, who were on the cover of Time magazine. And, you know, the chemistry, obviously, between Bill and Susan, (laughs) that became a long-standing marriage. And if you've never read their book, you should. Um, It's really a fascinating story. And they are great writers and hysterical and, and fascinating showbiz history to them. 
But, you know, again, you have to look at the dynamic. You have to look at it on screen. It's not just writing a great super couple. It's the directors figure it out. The actors get it for some reason. And you can't define it. If you could define it, every couple would be a super couple. You know, it would be a, a cookie-cutter situation, and it's not. You have to be able to, you know, accept everything that they give you and embrace it and then give them a story that is romantic, that it has conflict, that it's, you know, again, that's funny, that's relatable. We all want to have somebody that we can love and that looks in our eyes and we know that they're always going to be there for us. And that's what you kind of feel between all of the super couples that have been created. Ultimately, you know they're going to be there for each other. Absolutely. There's a, and I had a lot of favorite storylines on Days of Our Lives growing up. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've been through the Johns and Marlenas, the Romans and Marlenas, all mm-hmm. five million of them. Right. <laughs> which I oh, want yes, to get, in, which, which I want to get into in a minute. Um, okay. You know, I. I just fell in love with everything that that had happened in the 80s and, and 90s. And one of the things that everybody has been talking about within the recent month is the Days of Our Lives relaunch, which just started on the 26th of September. I, I had to correct myself because I almost said this month, but this month is October now. Oh, I know. Here we are in October. <laughs> I'm still thinking in September flies. for some reason. Oh, God, I'm right. getting older. By the by the minute, it's terrible. But it happens to the best of us. Let me tell you, doesn't it? And <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? And you know, again, everybody's been talking about this. Fans alike, the show itself, and you know, even I'm sitting here watching it, and I feel like it's it's the days of old from back then with mm-hmm. with the storytelling. Uh, you started watching it, obviously. You've been watching it. And what is your opinion on it since the change from the past few years to just last week? Well, it's interesting because, for one, you know, Greg Ming, um, Ken Corday was smart enough to take Greg Ming, who, you know, was a senior VP at Days for a long time and now made him co-executive producer along with Noel, Max- Noel Maxim. And Greg is the one who I've been working with a lot on the books. So, um, and he and I have had a lot of discussions over the last couple of years, and it's generally about story, whether it's on the show or in the books or whatever. And he is such, he's got such a sense of heart and about what people want to see and what they love from the past, which is relatable characters and positive characters. And I think um, Ken, and Ken has admitted this in press and in France, that he kind of turned things over to the former executive producer and head writer who just had a different vision and they were going down a different road and I think they might have been trying to compete with reality TV, which as we know is very dark in a lot of ways and it's just very combative. And Mm -hmm. so their focus and their vision I just think was very different. And suddenly, you know, when you saw the ratings sinking and then you had the wake-up call of All My Children and One Life to Live being canceled off the network Fortunately, they're being picked up by Prospect Park and are going online in a very big, very positive way in January. But that initial shock of another two shows, look, we lost Dying Light and as the world turns within the last couple of years. And so suddenly they had to step back and say, wow, how do we get back to that old audience? How do we, how do we satisfy the viewers? and get new viewers. And it's really going back to romance, adventure, conflict, 
humor, and heart, you know, and they have it. So I think that's the difference. Okay, very It's so much lighter now. When you look at it right now, there's brightness to the show. And, you know, two or six months ago you would look at it and it all felt very dark. Whether even the lighting or the characters, they were all going through dark periods rather than (gasps) a renewed sense of hope and light and joy. And in this economy and in this world situation, we need that. That's the escape now. It it was, as you said, it was a very dark period uh, Mm -hmm. for the show. Because even for me, I I would look at characters and I would go, why are they acting out of character? It it just seemed like there's some instances where this person is doing something you would not necessarily expect them to do. And that's really what I thought about it. And and I think now they're going to start changing that, and thankfully for, for the better. So I can't wait to see what what is going to be coming from that. But you know, when when you written the past, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, with Roman one, Roman two, Roman one million six hundred and seventy five. Don't start me on that. Don't start me on that. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're gonna have to start you on that because I I notice how I'm stuttering because I'm just like, yes. How did you get through that? I mean, let's talk about. I'm one of the. I was one of those guys that's like, okay, who are you going to be tomorrow? I mean, you were Roman. Yeah. You're now John. You're now a priest. You're now like, you're like, how did you? I mean, well, the thing is, you know, when when those characters were created, I was there with uh, Pat Falcons next to Maggie DePriest when Roman Brady was created. And as I said, Pat, you know, brought the Brady family in and she brought the Demira family in. And it was really at that point, it was just Stefano and Tony and it was Roman. And Roman was the character that she created. And Roman and Marlena, Wayne Northrup and Deirdre Hall had a great dynamic. You know, I loved them together in those days. They were absolutely fantastic. And when Wayne decided to leave the show, then suddenly, we and that was his choice, we had, were put in the situation of coming up with, you know, another solution, and we really brought John Black in back as Roman, and that was really one of my stories, which was called The Purse, The Power, and The Pawn, but it was, John Black was Roman, and it's very interesting, you know, I, to me, <laughs> to me, he always was Roman, and I have trouble not believing he still is Roman, because I loved Josh Taylor. I loved writing him as Chris Kosicek. I loved him with Shannon Tweed. Um, but for me, you know, in those days, he always was and would be John. So it's it's very interesting. I mean, would be Roman. When you go back as a writer and then come back to a show and suddenly the dynamic has changed totally. And then what happens is, is you then need to deal with the story that's been created because my feeling is you always want to satisfy the audience and to make it make sense logically. And that's been a tough one. And I have to say, you know, when I was writing the novels, in the first one, because it is very John and Marlena-centric, you know, and it was trying for the audience or the readers who had never seen the show to explain who they are (laughs) and who they were, um, suddenly you try to put that in a few paragraphs, and it it was, uh Um, uh-oh. How do I start this? (laughs) How do I start this, and how do I make this make sense so it's not totally confusing? Yeah, you know, when people are watching something on a day-to-day basis, and we're talking, you know, 250 shows a year, right. you don't kind of look in the big overview picture. You're looking at it from day to day. And I think that's one reason why I hope and I do believe soaps will always survive because 
when you look at a reality show, even if you look at a primetime show, if, whether it's a drama, whether it's a comedy, they're not on every day. It's not new material every day. It might be on 20 episodes a year, and then you see repeats, and then you see something. And the, but it's not new programming every day, which is a huge amount of work. And that's why I've always said sometimes it's brilliant and sometimes it's, you know, it's not so good. Um, most of the time, fortunately, I'd say it hits in the 90 percentile, you know, but you have clunkers here and then, as we know, but it's because of the time constraints, because you can't stop and say, I have three weeks to do this, let's rewrite it. You get it, you do it. I, and I've said this to some of the actors before, I remember writing scripts and I've said, oh my God, if the actor can do this, God bless them. But you have to go to the next day. You have to move on because that's why it's, you know, it's a daytime drama and it's 52 weeks a year for now, 40, you know, years on some of the shows. Um, yeah, this days is going to be celebrating 46th anniversary this November. I mean, you can't see that with any other show that's out there, any show that's been around for over 40 years, that's still in the air for over 40 years. You know, guiding lights bit on counting. Yes, it's Okay. I, I might have missed something you said. For some reason, you just dropped out. Could you repeat that for me? I'm sorry. Oh, I did. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I thought, oh, I can't hear you. Where's the question? Uh oh, where did I, I go? Back, so. <laughs> I'm still here. Uh, but no, I was like, you can't say that for any any other show that's on television right now that has no. survived 40 plus years. And Guiding Light has been on the air for 72 years, counting television and radio. I wrote Guiding Light one year, and it was their 50th anniversary, and that, that was a long time ago, and it's astonishing. Astonishing. You can't, I mean, if you look, looking at television now, can, you can't, do you think that there could be anything that comes in that could ever compete with daytime and the longevity that it has had for so long? Do you think anything no. can come in? No. No, I really don't think it could. And as I said, you know, you can have a lot of um, reality shows or you can have talk shows. And that's, boy, do I commend, you know, you have to look at people like Regis Philbin and Kelly Ripa and those people, um, the, the people, even Leno and Letterman, although these days I'm a Jimmy Fallon fanatic, um, and Craig Ferguson. But, you know, you look at these guys and think of doing it every day. The amount, the amount of material, I mean, we all have to bow down to them and say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> True, wow. Yeah, because they got to do it right in front of that audience every single day of the week. And I'm like, God bless them. God bless yeah, them. Yeah, they can't hide behind a computer either, so that's pretty good. Yeah. You know, what I'm, one, of my, one of the stories that I never had the privilege of seeing live, but I read about it and I finally got to watch YouTube, the wonderfulness of YouTube, was the Salem Strangler story. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. From the 80s. And, oh, you know, yeah. And, of course, that was heavily talked about. That was heavily publicized simply because of this one thing. I mean, it was heavily talked about, but it got even more intense when they thought Marlena was killed. Well, it was very interesting when that happened, and I've said this story before, but, but you know, we got picketed at the studio, and it was really funny because everybody was protesting, and obviously we knew that it, you know, that it wasn't really Marlena, although it would be hard to do that now because of the Internet and because of, tweets and, you know, everything, all the spoilers, you know, you don't have those surprises anymore. But in those days, you know, Maggie DePriest and I actually went out and walked with the picketers. They didn't know who we were. It was was fun to hear them all grumbling and complaining and that we knew that that wasn't really the story. 
but then, you know, and it turned out that um, Jack Coleman, who later went on to do so many wonderful things, including Heroes, you know, and he was Jake Kostacek. Or, yeah, Jake Kostacek. And he, um, you know, he was brilliant in those last days as well. You can look at these actors and go, oh, no, what are we doing? But, you know, right. again, in those days it was a matter of, and not in any days, but it's a matter of having mystery and intrigue and drama and people that you care about. Everybody loved and still loves Marlena. Don't we know it? And so it's, you know, using those characters. If she wasn't such a good character, they wouldn't have been so so upset when they thought she had died. Um, but so that, you know, I was I was lucky enough to work in, in those early days and on General Hospital with Gloria Monti, who as, you know, there are the stories of her being a tyrant, and she was, but she was also a brilliant, brilliant woman who... You know, kind of re- she helped redefine daytime again. And, you know, then when we left General Hospital and we went to Days of Our Lives, um, you know, we kind of carried some of that over there. And, you know, so there's so many people that have been involved in the evolution of daytime. Um, and I'm just really so lucky to have been, you know, in those days. But, yeah, Sam Stranger was pretty amazing. So... You answered part of my long burning question was that it's mm-hmm. the, you guys did know that that was Mar- that wasn't Marlena that was killed because I kind of was sitting there going like I wonder if they changed it. So no, you answered, no, no, that was the story. <laughs> that was the story. Okay, so you okay, so there we are. That was part one. Part two was that I was looking at it and I was trying to decipher if that was Deidre or Andrea doing that part when they got Andrea, Deidre and Andrea. We didn't have okay. Deidre Double for anything then. It was Andrea and Deidre. Okay. There we go. Yep. Now you answered. Now you answered those questions that I had in my head for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> a okay. long I'm time. I'm glad I'm answering questions for you. And I told you earlier, I can talk forever, so you can ask me whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you said that you know the revolution of daytime really started with with. I mean, I I think the revolution of daytime even. Um, commenced in the 70s heavily on General Hospital because, you know, General Hospital was facing cancellation in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then Gloria Monty came in and totally changed his makeup, bringing in excitement and romance and adventure to, to that show with, you know, with the introduction of Luke Spencer, starting off mm-hmm. with bringing Luke Spencer onto the show. Um, yeah, the thing wonderful that is just, just a just a little side note is um, my husband now, uh, Pekka Thomas, who actually uh, is um, doing a radio show and he has another company, all these things. He does a radio show with Bernie Taupin, but but he was in casting then and was one of the people who helped find Tony Keery. I did not know him then. <laughs> I wow. didn't know him. I was a writer and we found out later, 10 years later, that we had both worked there at the same time and that I was passing his office on a daily basis. But, you know, Gloria and Tony Geary had straight hair back then. What do you know? But Tony and Jeannie, again, <laughs> you put them together. And I have to say Doug Marland really was, you know, the one who kind of really was there at the very inception of, of Luke and Laura. And then I was over there with Pat Bogans and Maggie DePriest um, mm-hmm. just when Scotty and Laura got married, you know, all the way through just like a month before, two months before Luke and Laura got married. So it was really that whole Ice Princess, you know, the... Luke and Laura, Luke rape Laura's story, which I always talk right. about that, that people mis, you know, have a misconception of what that was because it was really a very beautifully drawn out story about people who were suffering, and it was the first time that that anyone had ever actually gotten into the um, the date rape situation, and so that that was 
one of the reasons we had done that story. And, uh, you know, it was a phenomenal time to be there with great people. And Gloria, you know, there was always the joke about it. She said, I'm doing the show and I'm putting everybody on roller skates because they move, they move, they move, they move, they move. Mm-hmm. So you would see you know, a lot of action, a lot of, uh, it, it was just a, a beautiful time with wonderful actors, you know, and wonderful directors. And, you know, those things are so important. And, you know, in my opinion, it is all about story, but the story doesn't work as well. Uh, at all, if you don't have the right chemistry between the actors and you know, the symbiosis with the producers and the directors, so you know it's 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 for you know everybody has to take credit. Yeah, I never really had knew about the the Luke and Laura rape storyline until probably about mm-hmm. their 35th anniversary when they did that special mm-hmm. and they mentioned that. And I know that Tony Geary delivered a wonderful monologue about the. Um, in that scene to Jonathan Jackson when he was lucky about mm-hmm. raving Laura. And my, you know, one of the things what, what was with me was that do people still ever mention it? Have you ever seen people mention that storyline? Because when I see people talk about it, there are some people that come out of the woodwork and say, well, Luke raped Laura. How can Laura ever be with a man who raped mm-hmm. her all those years ago? Like, do people bring that point up sometimes? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting because what happens is in in those days and over the years, because they just talk about the Luke Ray Flora story, and it's such just like a high, it sounds like a high concept, and it sounds like this is somebody who jumped out of the bushes and raped her, and suddenly, you know, she fell in love with him. And it was a very, very complex, long story, very, very... You know, we dealt with a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists about this to really deal with the whole situation, you know, and, and both of them suffered deeply. And I, we, when we were just in uh, Houston for the book tour for Days of Our Lives for the first book, it was very interesting because we did a TV show, uh, mm-hmm. the news, and one of the girls who worked on the show said, oh, I hear you worked on the loop. Lauren's, you know, story and when Luke raped Lauren, I said yes, and she said, I get so angry when people don't understand what that story was about because they have a total misconception of it over the years. And and if people really went back and watched the shows and really looked at how it was in the beginning, um, it was very, very effective and helped a lot of people. What happened, unfortunately, because it was so successful, a number of the other shows went, oh, we're just going to have people rape people, and suddenly that's a good story, and it. And it was a terrible, terrible example and a terrible, terrible, in my opinion, exploration of that subject where it really was meant to be a very emotional, um, uh, compelling story that helps people. It wasn't for sensationalism. And that's what I think has happened in so many of the, the shows. And that's what's happening on reality TV now. You know, you and I, we're kind of talking about reality TV. And it's all now about sensationalism and voyeurism. But now on reality TV, real people are getting hurt. Real people are getting smacked in the face. Real people are getting humiliated. And they go away and it really affects their lives. It's not an actor. It's not any of those things where, you know, suddenly it isn't real. I mean, I always liked the fact that I said soap operas were there so that we can gossip about somebody, but nobody gets hurt. Right. But now you've got the reality shows where real people are getting hurt and real people are putting up, in, in many of the cases, very, very, very bad examples of humanity at the moment, in my opinion, you know, and, and so I, you know, I've really kind of tried to now steer clear of them as much as I can, 
except watching The Soup, which I love Joel McHale and watching The Soup, and that's where I get my fill of reality TV these days. That's, I love that show. I can't fault oh, you for that fantastic. one. Oh, he's fantastic. I can't fault you for that I miss Danielle Fischel when she had a great show to the dish, and I don't know where she went. But I like, you know, I like just getting those tidbits. Why Why do you think reality TV is causing demise of soap operas? Of course, I have my reasons, but they don't want to hear about mine. <laughs> yeah, you know, when we say the demise of soap operas, you know, everybody keeps talking about that. And I really don't think, you know, if the writing stays good, soap operas are never going to go away. As we say, all my children right now and One Life to Live are going to, they're going online. And, you know, in years past, going online was the kiss of death. But Prospect Park, who's come in, has a lot of money, fortunately. You know, they have produced some, you know, major films. They have a show, Royal Pains, on the air on USA. And they know what they're doing. And they bought the sets. They bought, you know, they bought all the, with the wardrobe. They're you know, cutting back on certain things, like they're moving studios in the case of One Life to Live. But they're, you know, making deals with the major actors and they're paying them very nice money to do this job. And it's, they're really kind of continuing exactly what's been on network. Um, they're doing an hour show online. And I don't know if you mentioned, but I had actually, I was creative consultant in the early, well, for the first original content site on the Internet when we didn't even have broadband, which was about... 18 years ago, I think, 15 oh, years no, ago. Wow. And in those days, you thought it was, you know, nobody could really watch it. You would have, you know, you'd have to buffer and it been forever. But now, uh, because of, you know, the speed of online, and everything eventually is going to go online, we have to realize that. It's, you know, it's going to be a new day. And then, you know, you can use a TV monitor to watch your shows, but so much of, of, any, of any viewership is going to go online. And I just think, you know, Prospect Park has hired Frank Valentini, who was is the executive producer of One Life to Live, to handle their daytime thing. Agnes Nixon right. is a consultant for them on All My Children. I mean, how can you not think that these people are going to really redefine everything? And so I don't feel that daytime is going away. I think that it's going to flourish, actually. Um, but in reality, you know, reality is people taking things in small doses and and that you really can't commit to that much ultimately, and daytime is going to last forever. Because it's things that you share with family, you know, it's generational. Well, absolutely, it gets passed down from generation to generation. I mean, you know, my mom, my, my grandma lost it and my mom, and then it got passed yeah. on to me. And then, yeah, you know, exactly. I think, honestly, that the Internet is, it, it, it's pretty much where everything's going to go. I mean, pretty, honestly, mm-hmm. who doesn't do anything online anymore? To be quite honest with you, I know that yeah. there's some people out there that don't have internet, but that's kind of marginal. There's a lot of people right now that pretty much watch TV online. If you miss something on TV, even if you have a DVR, there's people that sit at their computers and watch TV online. Hulu.com, main site everybody goes to. Absolutely. So, no, it's it's major, 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 major. And it's just a matter of, you know, People used to listen to radio and say, oh, why would I want to sit in front of a TV because I have to look at the screen? I can just walk around and listen to my radio. Well, guess what? Now people are going to be looking. They can take their computer. They can sit, you know, as I am right now in the garden of the Chateau Marmont Hotel. God bless me. I'm very lucky. And I can <laughs> sit here and, you know, look at things online or, you know, any of those things. I can go anywhere in the world, you know. And I was going to say something about soaps that is so lovely. Is, and you're talking about generational stuff. You know, anywhere you go in the world, 
and I, I've traveled quite a bit, you know, in the last few years. You mentioned Days of Our Lives, and most people know what it is. Ninety percent of the people know what it is, and you have an immediate connection, and it's like you share family members. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I mean, it's, it's really, it's a compelling medium. It has been, it always will be. And, you know, as I said, everybody talks about the, the demise of soap operas. Well, I don't think they're going anywhere. Absolutely. I don't think so. They're, they're not going to die. I mean, we ask that question all the time, and there's been some people that say it's in trouble, the genre is in trouble, um, it's a dying breed, but honestly, I don't think it's going to die. I think it's just going to continue, and it's just going to continue in a different format than what we're used to. You graduated from radio, you graduated from that to yeah. television, and now you're going yeah. to take it from television to online. Come on. It's yeah, not Yeah, and, you know, if you way. talk to, like, I would say, really, I don't know what the exact, exact statistics are, but for viewers under the age of, like, 26, so many of them don't even have a TV anymore. They oh, say, oh no. I got rid of my TV. I know that. So, you know, it's all changing, and we just all have to keep up with the program. <laughs> I think the only people that have TVs are at least my age of 26, if not between uh, 18 to 34. The only reason mm-hmm. they have a TV is to watch football on in high def. And that's <laughs> right. it. Everything yeah, else, they'll, they're either watching stuff on their phone or they're on the computer. I, I, I'm just telling you how it is. And that's pretty much my mm-hmm. demographic. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. yeah. And you're the demo we want, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And I think with it going online, that is the demo you're pretty much going to have. You have your probably longevity of viewers, too, that will tune in online as well. But I think a lot of the younger viewers will be watching online, too, because that, that's But, you know, it's, it's interesting when you say that. Uh, you know, I, uh, my, as an example, I have an aunt who is, uh, you know, almost 80, and she has a computer and is on it all the time. And, you know, you see these people that you think they're never going to be able to, to go over to online, but they do. They do. You know, even in that, you know, that age bracket. So... Um, you know, t- the times are changing, as I said, and we're just having to keep up with them. And that's why I think the relaunch is really, you know, it's it's reinvigorating, you know, the viewers. It's reinvigorating the actors, and it's fantastic. You know, I'm very, very excited about it. Because those are a lot of characters, you know, so many of them I either created or co-created that they've brought back. I'm very flattered, and I'm very attached to them. <laughs> My friend Matt from Kentucky, he's on Twitter. He says, as long as there are people who want to find out what's going to happen tomorrow, soaps will survive. And I can't deny that statement. That is a very, very true statement. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're going to want to know. One of the the major soap cliches, I have to ask you this as a writer, that everybody always shakes their head at or it's like, ugh, again, comments to is bringing people back from the dead. Is what? (laughs) Bringing people back from the dead. The most popular. Yeah, you know, the, the truth. Oh, I know. The truth is, I'm not real hot about that whole idea. But, you know, oh, I'm. Bless I your heart. Killed, Thank God. I know. <laughs> but, you know, the truth is, I killed Stefano the first time, and then suddenly he came back. And part of it was, you know, I was on the show, and then I would leave and go to another show, and you come back and you go, oh, oh my God, this person's back. Um, <laughs> and so, you know. Suddenly, that's why, and I don't know what they're doing right now, but, you know, it used to be that if somebody was killed, you would want to make a scene where you saw that there was an empty coffin or you saw that there was a body was missing or you saw that there was, you know, something being switched in the lab so that it ultimately later you could you could explain it away. 
But, you know, I worked with a producer in South Africa, and, you know, and this is book two, A Stirring from Salem, takes place in South Africa, mm-hmm. the majority of it, um, with, you know, John and Marlena and Patch and Kayla and Bill Horton and a number of those people down in South Africa. And, you know, the producer I worked with there, who's, he said, I will never recast an, a, a character and I will never bring someone back from the dead. And he's been exceptionally successful. <laughs> so, you know, it's... it's you know, because the truth is, we all have so many characters that we can create, and we can just bring new people in. So we, you know, for us to to rely on that character work, so let's just bring them back. I think sometimes it's just lazy storytelling. Hmm. I never looked at it that way, but you know what? You're right. That is correct. That's my opinion. Because we all have <laughs> new creative characters to bring in. And then, you know, increase the canvas. If Pat Falcon Smith had not brought in, as I said, Roman Brady, and then we brought in most of the rest of the Brady family, or if she hadn't brought in Stefano and Tony, where would the Demiras be? There are so many other people that you can bring in, and it doesn't have to be Stefano. You know, it can be all, you know, a lot of ancillary people. But then you bring in, like, the Kiriakas. You bring in a number of different people. There are always new characters that then, then invigorate the canvas because we don't know them. We have to learn about them. We don't know their backstory. So for me, I like bringing in new people. You know, if you, as I said, if you read either of the books, uh, the third one is just getting started, but in book one and book two, there are, in my opinion, some very fascinating characters that we've not met before. And now people are saying, I want to see them. I want to see them. I want to know about them. I want to learn about them. And right. it's because I think we don't, we shouldn't be lazy. We need to keep defining new characters for the audience. How did get doing remote location scenes, you know, get started? I always think that they kind of got started with GH because I kind of feel like General Hospital was the the stepping stone for the rest of the shows on the air at that time to do yeah. wonderful location shoots that were adventurous and everything. Like, what kind of brought that niche about? You think? You know, I think I think if if you're right, because I'm trying to remember some of the first. Uh, location things that we did, but I still remember um, Luke and Laura on the boat that in Marina del Rey, and when uh, I, and, uh, yeah, and I think that was, might have been one of the first ones. But I think it was pretty much Gloria Monty wanting to get out of the studio, and then you know people who came over like Shelley Curtis again. She also doesn't get up. Al Raven, for God's sake, is a producer on Days of Our Lives, one of the best ever. Um, during the 80s, and Shelley Curtis was there during the 80s, and, you know, they, as producers, you know, had such a vision of, you know, satisfying the audience, and the audience at that time, as we said, there was a lot of money on the shows then, there was a lot of promotion on the shows then, but especially mm-hmm. Gloria and Jackie Smith, was, who was at ABC, and Eleanor Timmerman, whose, whose daughter, Sarah Timmerman, is now one of the biggest producers in Hollywood, you know, we, I love sitting in meetings with all those people, and they were very, very innovative, and they were willing to spend money, and they were willing to see what they could do. They had second units they brought out there, and I really, as I said, I think it was Gloria who did it first, and if anybody could do it, she could, and she did it very successfully. And then when something is successful, other shows follow suit. I have to end with this question, and this is a hard one because you've written so many of them. Okay. What, what has been... Yeah. Your most favorite to write. I was gonna, I was gonna say least, but I'm not gonna end it there. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, my what I loved writing, I have to 
say, there are a number of things. So I have to say first, and it really was doing, you know, going through the Luca Mora story, um, because I was kind of known for the romance over there. So I was, you know, and I, I don't know if you saw any of that stuff, but like Windham's department store and a lot of stuff with Luca Mora on the run. And the romance stuff and and uh, that's a glamour is very exciting to me. But, you know, I think my most satisfying story, I've said, boy, now I'm going to think of John Black and Marlena. <laughs> when I think of the first star in the pond, and then I think of, you know, when Bo was revealed as Victor Kiriakis' son, and that changed that whole dynamic of that family. So, you know, what was my favorite if I had to go and revisit them? You know, probably, ultimately, I would say writing the John and Marlena story. Uh, but then, you know, Luke and Laura, and then Bo and Hope. You know, here we go. And then yeah. Jane and Kim. And Tony and Anna, who were very sexy and sophisticated and romantic and, you know, all of those things. Wow. It's a hard one for me to answer. It's like having to pick between your children, you know? <laughs> See? I told you. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. It's terrible. No. But it's terrible in a great way. I, I loved it. And, you know, I, you shared so much insight and a lot of things I wanted to know about the age. And, you know, I, you know, a lot of questions I finally have answered about it. And, you know, I I envy you for what you have done for so many years. And oh, well, thank you. Providing us with quality entertainment on this show as well as General Hospital at the time. And, you know, I'm going to echo everybody at, at Daytime Royalty. They went ahead and said, like, you know, this this woman needs to be back as at least a consultant. Oh, that's very sweet. Well, you know, what I hope everyone does now is return to the show, specifically Days of Our Lives, see what they're doing, support it, support it, support it. And also, I would love everybody to buy my books, and I want people to buy them and then send me their thoughts on them and tell me what they'd like to see in the next one. So, you know, it's a secret from Salem, a secret in Salem and a stirring from Salem. And, you know, if people have Days of Our Lives, there's also that great coffee table book that they did this last year. And also Ken Corday's memoir is amazing. And then, as I told you, Bill and Susan Hayes novel, wonderful. So, you know, if if people want to touch base with that, you know, get it on their Kindle or go to Amazon.com and do that and then keep watching the show and keep supporting it. Because as long as people keep supporting it, even if there's a show they don't like, keep supporting it and they'll stay on the air and we don't want anything else to go away. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sherry Anderson, thank you so much for coming by here and spending time with me talking about any and everything. I had so much <laughs> fun. It was great. Oh, well, listen, as I told you, I'm more than happy any time, so give me a call any time you want to chat. I can go on forever. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no doubt. Thank you okay, so darling, much. Okay, darling, thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. That was our interview that we did with Sherry Anderson back in October here on Buzzworthy Radio. Tomorrow, our retrospective continues as we air two of my favorite interviews. And, of course, I think a lot of people know that this just had to be included in, in, in this retrospective week. Ashton Holmes and Gabriel Mann, the interviews that we did with those two, the stars of ABC's Revenge. And, of course, we had to have that on a Wednesday. Revenge is on Wednesdays, and it returns with a brand new episode entitled Duress tomorrow night at 10 p.m. on ABC. So check that out. We're actually going to, of course, have that interview done earlier because I can't be disturbed when Revenge is on, just so you know. So make sure you check that interview out at 9 p.m. Eastern. 
6 p.m. Pacific time here on blogtalkradio.com slash buzzworthyradio. I'm Navelle J. Lee, making sure you visit us tomorrow and get the latest buzz with Buzzworthy Radio. We'll see you guys later. Hey, this is Michael Grazade. You're listening to Buzzworthy Radio. And if you're not, you should be. Can't get enough of Buzzworthy Radio. Log on now to www.buzzworthyradio.net to get the latest news on upcoming guests, past shows, and videos of all your favorite stars. Keep getting the latest buzz with Buzzworthy.